Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and for the next half hour, we're going to be talking to a Canadian author, and the author of a book that I want to urge every Canadian, especially every Christian Canadian, to buy a copy of and read, because it's an extraordinarily important book. Now, the author I'm talking to is Don Hutchinson. Many of you will recognize his name as he once worked with the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. Uh, he's written quite a lot. He's, a, he's quite a well-known lawyer, who, lawyer who's uh, appeared before the Supreme Court several times and on dozens of different media outlets. And now he's uh, put his skills to work writing a book called Under Siege, Religious Freedom and the Church in Canada at 150, 1867 to 2017. And in this book, what uh, Don Hutchinson does is takes us through the history of religious freedom and then explains what the threats to religious freedom are. And one of the reasons it's such an incredibly helpful book that he's written is because he acknowledges the threats that exist, but also encourages Christians by really detailing uh, how firm many of our religious liberties are and tries to uh, make us aware of the fact that if we uh, fight back against challenges to religious freedom, we'll realize that, for example, the Supreme Court of Canada has confirmed the right to religious liberty over and over again. So combined with the history that really sets the stage, he also details what's going on right now and then what the Christian response can be. And he really fills a gap there are no other significant books that I'm aware of that deal with religious liberty on this scale and, and with this depth. And for that reason, uh, I really hope that, that all of my listeners will take a moment to look this book up. And at very minimum, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Don Hutchinson and feel as informed as I did. Uh, just to start off, the question I always ask uh, new authors is, why did you write this book? I wrote Under Siege, Religious Freedom in the Church in Canada at 150, because there was a gap. Uh, there are great books that have been written for lawyers and great books that have been written for academics on the subject of religious freedom. But Missing was a book that was written for the average reader or for pastors uh, to understand the state of religious freedom in our country and to share with them really the good news that you're not going to find the media expressing. Good news is, of course, always a bit of a hook, especially considering uh, the many books that have been coming out recently explaining how the culture is declining. So uh, let's start with that. What would you say is the good news about religious liberty uh, in in uh, in Canada at 150, because I'm sure everybody who is reading the news is reading about case after case after case. Some of them, uh, you know, being fought by by some of our mutual friends uh, that 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 appear as if we are, as your title puts it, under siege. The good news is coming from the Supreme Court of Canada. Most of the bad news is coming from human rights tribunals or the lower courts, who seem not to be paying sufficient attention to what the Supreme Court has said. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has looked at the Charter and the guarantee of the fundamental freedom of conscience and religion found in Section 2A, noting that it's a huge freedom. It's a freedom that allows us not only to believe and to worship, but to share our faith, to evangelize, to engage in the public sphere 
uh, without fear unless we're using our faith to try and hammer somebody else over the head. Give us a couple of recent examples of, of good news from the Supreme Court that, that people may have missed. Well, it depends what you consider recent. Uh, recent in terms of the law uh, is, is often a little more distant than recent in terms of an individual's memory. But uh, some of the good news has come in a case called uh, Chamberlain in 2004, when the Supreme Court of Canada defined the concept of secular as being inclusive of the religious. The court noted that everybody has a belief in something, whether it's atheistic, agnostic, or religious, and that the public spaces of our country have to make space have to make room for all of us to be able to express from our personal perspectives our comments on public policy. The, uh, the reference in regard to same-sex marriage, often what we hear from that case, also from 2004, is uh, that the court legalized same-sex marriage, which it did not. The court said that the federal government under the Constitution had the jurisdiction to define marriage the court also indicated in that case that if the government chose to define marriage to allow marriage between uh, two men or two women, that the court could not force religious officiants to perform those cer ceremonies in violation of their religious beliefs. And the court took one step further and said that even if the issue was uh, the buildings, religious buildings, churches and uh, other facilities, mosques or synagogues, that it would apply a similar standard of reasoning in those instances and that the buildings couldn't be forced to be used against the religious beliefs of uh, the owners. So those are, are two very good news stories from my perspective. And a third one is one that uh, we're going to find out a little bit more on in November, but in 2001, and in subsequent cases following up, the court made decision, a decision concerning Trinity Western University in a case uh, with the British Columbia College of Teachers when Trinity Western wanted to open a teaching college. The court said that we also have to make room not just for religious individuals, but for religious institutions, and that not everybody is going to agree with those institutions, but those institutions serve a role in our free and democratic society. Yeah, those are those are the things that I found most encouraging about your book, but what I found most interesting about your book, because I'm a history buff, is that I think for the first time, as you say you filled a gap, there was there was really an examination of the state of religious liberty going all the way back. I've done a lot of reading on the pro-life movement going all the way back and, and examining what Canada's history on the human rights of the pre-born have done. But your book really did a, did a great job of, I thought, relatably relaying to people uh, what things have been like. So give our listeners sort of an idea of the arc of history that you cover in this book. Well, we, we start uh, before Confederation and take a look at the fact that uh, when, when the French first arrived uh, to discover the Aboriginal people were here, they brought with them Catholicism. And the French settlements uh, were focused not only on claiming land, 
but priests were coming to engage in evangelizing the indigenous peoples of Canada. Uh, when the British arrived, they brought with them Anglicanism, and uh, the 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 leap over French Canada to English Canada uh, created a scenario where there were tensions, as there were tensions throughout North America, and ultimately the resolution was with the 1763 Treaty of Paris, in which room was made for uh, predominantly French Catholicism to remain in a nation that was going to be ruled by the British. That was something that was virtually unheard of in the context of European disagreements. Uh, subsequently, we have um, the provision in the Constitution Act of 1867, which was originally known as the British North America Act, to protect the schools of minority religious communities. So Protestant schools in the French Catholic parts of the country uh, and Catholic schools in the Protestant parts of the country, and then as English Catholicism grew, protection for those Catholic schools, uh, as French uh, Protestantism grew, although not as much, uh, protection for those schools. So we've seen this accommodation of religious belief that's had a long history in our country. And then we get to the new religions uh, that started coming into the country because of the freedoms that Canada offered. And uh, I, I look particularly at Glenn Howe and the Jehovah's Witnesses because uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses were prepared to fight for their religious beliefs in court. And Glenn Howe was their lead lawyer in Canada. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, through Glenn Howe's work, really helped to define the modern concept of religious freedom in the nation of Canada through seeking conscientious objective, objector status for uh, its, its men who were all considered to be priests in the priesthood of all believers during the Second World War and seeking similar status to be able to adhere to their religious beliefs that they did not uh, sing national anthems or, or pay homage to national objects such as the flag. And Howe was uh, also very stringent in pursuit of a national Bill of Rights, which uh, we had with the Charter in 1982 as part one of the Constitution Act of 1982, where the first fundamental freedom that is guaranteed is that of conscience and religion. Now, it's, it's very interesting because coming to the, the 1980s here and uh, the tenure of, of Pierre Trudeau, who's just a very fascinating figure. He's very difficult to, to, to caricature. Uh, those who do caricature him probably aren't, aren't reading the sorts of things that he wrote, and it's, it's very safe to say, based on his own beliefs and, and his own writings, that he would very much oppose the removal of, of freedom of conscience or any infringement on religious freedom. So why is there this idea now that, that that sort of began the decline that we're watching right now, where just because of the cases that are taking place, uh, under siege seems to be as much a mentality among Christians uh, as it is what you're describing in your book. And, and I do talk about the mentality. that uh, I use the example of the famous uh, Canada-Soviet Union summit series in 1972, mm -hmm. where the Soviet team was playing on home ice, and they only needed a, a tie 
uh, or a win in the final three games to win the entire series. And they switched from playing a very offensive style of hockey that was overwhelming the Canadians to a defensive style of hockey that resulted in losing all three games. And quite remarkably, Paul Henderson scoring a winning goal in all three games, although uh, those of us who either watched it uh, live or on television at the time or those who watched the replays remember only the goal, the last one right. in game eight. Um, and we, as Christians, have uh, adopted a mentality that the the uh, the roots of secularism are strong and that there's an advancing secularism that is driving us out of the public square that needs to be accommodated. And we have in many ways become defensive and thought the safest place for us is to keep our private devotional lives at home and to maintain our worship practices in our places of worship, our churches. Uh, but we have predominantly been reluctant to share our faith at work or in the classroom or in public policy engagement, although there are small pockets, uh, as you're well aware, because that's what you do, who, hmm. who are willing to share their faith. And we've, we've developed the siege mentality, the idea that we need to protect ourselves, lock ourselves, as I say in the book, in our stained glass closets where it's safe. And I intentionally use the illustration of, of being in the closet because we're familiar with the idea that getting out of the closet is something we have to do in our own strength. No one else is going to do it for us. So the perspective that our faith is under siege is partly because, yes, there are aggressive and assertive secularists who do not want us to share our faith in public, but largely because we have accepted that opinion and uh, adopted an attitude of privatizing our faith. So to carry your analogy a step further, uh, essentially you're saying that we've given up territory voluntarily due to the siege mentality rather than attempting to be, you know, salt and light into society. And I'm very familiar with the closed communities you talk about, and there, Canada's a very interesting case because we're not a melting pot. But, you know, for, for the Reformed denomination I'm part of, for example, it was just part of a, of a Dutch wave that came to Canada generally through Pier 21 after either World War II or the 1953 North Sea Flood, and everybody came to more or less, uh, you know, one of half a dozen areas in Canada, and they're still concentrated there to this day. And it was perceived as a sort of Canadian thing to, you know, build an agrarian-based community with a church at the center of it. Everybody leaves you alone, you leave them alone, and it wasn't until the emergence of organizations like the Association for Reform Political Action that we started to engage civilly and politically in, in any real way. Do you think that, that that sort of maybe uniquely Canadian experience, but at the same time also harmful experience, has, a, has caused us to give up ground that we, that we had no, no reason to? I think that um, you know, a number of, of people coming from different uh, cultural backgrounds and national backgrounds, uh, we've, we've often sort of stuck to ourselves a bit in that regard. Uh, from the religious perspective, of course, the Dutch bring the, the rich heritage of Abraham Kuyper uh, to Canada and, and Citizens for Public Justice under Jerry Van de Zandy back in the 70s and 80s uh, started to engage on a number of issues, 
similarly, uh, in the Protestant community, the, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada started to awaken to political issues in the 1980s, particularly after the failure of uh, Bill C-43, the abortion legislation in, in the Senate. And uh, the, the Roman Catholic community has engaged through the Canadian Council of Churches, as have a number of other denominations, on a limited number of issues for a period of time, but became more politically active uh, in the 1990s, I would say. And so what we have is uh, a reactivation after a period of time, either coming out of La Révolution Tranquille in Quebec, the Quiet Revolution, or coming out of the general cultural revolution across the rest of the country that took place through the 1960s and 70s, where the church retreated from the public square, where the church started to re-engage in the public square. The difference now, of course, is the church had lost its place of respect, and we are building our way back into the public square still, while the uh, the the secular, uh, I hate to say secularists, uh, the the secular community has moved into a level of engagement that has convinced uh, politicians, for example, that their faith should not be determinative of public policy positions. And we've heard this from a number of politicians on a number of issues, even though almost all of our prime ministers have come from a Christian background. Uh, many of them have said that you know, their faith is not going to negatively impact public policy. And what they're really saying is, I, I'm not going to take a faith position on issues. Uh, faith has positively impacted public policy over the duration of our nation's history. And there's little to think that it would negatively impact public policy to engage biblical principles in the public square. Which sort of brings us to now, because... That's precisely it. You see this in every election when anybody who has a faith background spends a lot of time assuring people that, that will be irrelevant to how he acts in the political square. And part of the siege mentality now, of course, comes from the fact that it seems like every other week there's a new school who's, you know, attempting to reassert their right to teach biblical principles uh, in, inside their walls or parents you know, asserting their right to, to have their children only exposed to those values that they wish them exposed to and things like that. So in spite of our, our, our very solid history and precedent on religious freedom, what are the threats that you see the Christian community facing over the next decade or so? Uh, one of the greatest threats that we face is the expansive litigation. Right. Uh, as a as a community, Christianity uh, is not a homogenous religious expression. Uh, the the largest expression of Christianity in the country, at just under about 40% of the population, is Roman Catholicism, and even the Catholics are not in agreement about everything. Right. And the result is that Christianity becomes a ready target for people when Christians decide to stand up for what they believe in. And the, the cost of litigation is really very high. So somebody files a human rights complaint, and immediately uh, the resources of government are at their disposal to assist them with their complaint. Someone who wants to defend a complaint either has to do it alone, or they have to find legal counsel 
to help them with it, and then they end up paying a lawyer. The the fees can be extensive, and uh, twinned with that is the fact that at the lower levels of the judiciary in particular, and in uh, the, the offices of too many lawyers across the country, they're simply not aware of the decisions that I share in Under Siege. They're not aware, and if they are aware, they're ideologically opposed to what the Supreme Court of Canada has decided, and it becomes a very long and expensive uphill process to stand for those rights to get all the way back to the Supreme Court of Canada. Part of what I hope Under Siege will do is arm people who are in that circumstance, help people more readily to find the defense or the strength to stand for Christ. And the third part of the book is a reminder that standing for Christ is not dependent on the law. It's dependent on our relationship with him and our our awareness of the scriptures. Too many Christians in Canada today uh, are not aware of the scriptures. The Bible engagement study that was undertaken in 2013 indicates that only about 14% of Christians are reading the Bible on a weekly basis. And that's an indication that uh, there are a lot of us who are thinking that the, the hour or two hours on a Sunday are sufficient, and that really getting deep in an understanding of our faith is not something we're committed to. One of the questions that we've heard in other settings and that I ask in the book is, uh, if you were charged with being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? Right. In other countries, we've seen people being convicted for their religious beliefs, or we've seen people uh, with Daesh being beheaded for their religious beliefs, for their commitment to Christ, and their unwavering commitment to Christ. And uh, in Canada, uh, when we face the challenges that come our way, whether they're through human rights or through complaints, that arise in the lower levels of the courts, the question arises for us, will we stand for Christ? And if things start to close in around us, will we stand for Christ? And that question should be answered independent of what our Constitution says. But knowing what our Constitution says and what the courts have decided is a great aid to us in standing for Christ. So I always hate to do this to somebody who just spent time producing, you know, a couple of hundred pages on the topic. But the, the nutshell synopsis of the good news and the bad news, if you had to tell somebody in just a few sentences what your analysis of religious liberty as it stands is, the good news and the bad news, how would you, how would you phrase that? The good news is we have the freedom to enjoy our faith in private and to witness to it in public. We are not to be denigrated for witnessing to our faith in public according to the decisions of the Supreme Court of Canada. The bad news is that not enough people are aware of that truth, and so people are afraid of sharing their faith or people are being belittled when they do share their faith. This is uh, a book that I hope Christian leaders and and I would hope every Christian, but, you know, every author thinks their book is the best one. 
Right. Uh, I've been I've been told, and uh, in another setting, I've said, "Well, I'm willing to take 67. Uh, the first 66 are in the the Protestant Bible, or I'm willing to take 74 if you're Catholic. The first 73 are in the Catholic Bible. Uh, learn those books, know them well, live from them, and if you're going to live from them in Canada, add this one to the list." Um, I think uh, the culture war is another one that could be added to the list. I know it's your show, so you might not promote your own book, <laughs> but I, I, I think they're 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 two good books to uh, not just have on the shelf, but have on the shelf, well marked and well read. So, with that in mind, where can people find your book? I know it's on sale and available in a wide variety of places. I've come across it just at, at events because I attend the sorts of events that your type of book would be on sale at, but where can the average listener get their hands on your book? The average listener can can pick up a copy of Under Siege either at donhutchinson.ca, which is my personal website. Uh, It's available at uh, Amazon in both uh, paperback and Kindle formats, and I understand from the publisher that uh, within a matter of weeks, it'll also be available in Apple iBooks, Kobo, and Scribd. Uh, and it's also available from Chapters Indigo and Christian bookstores generally. That's fantastic. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. Thank you, John. I appreciate it.